And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five, Hello and welcome to the Force 5 Podcast, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. The 80s and 90s were just filled with bizarre visions of what the future could look like, a film subgenre seemingly now lost for the most part. These wildly creative and certainly thoughtful premonitions set 20, 30 years ahead. This topic brought to me by Tarek Davis, co-star on NBC's The Amber Ruffin Show, took me right back to browsing the sci-fi section at the local blockbuster, searching for that diamond in the rough that would be filled with cyborgs, virtual reality, and of course, fires endlessly burning inside of empty metal barrels. Tarek was an excellent guest, and something happened on this show that has never happened before, so I hope you have a good time with the episode I know that we both did. Uh, just, a, just a real fun topic. First up, though, we've got some feedback on last week's episode with Ryan from the New World Pictures podcast because apparently we missed some great Charles Bronson films. Erica Bowers wrote in uh, at force5podcast at gmail.com, and um, I'm not going to read the whole message, but said that her favorite was Death Hunt, also starring Lee Marvin. We had a couple of different uh, Mr. Majestic mentions, which I have not seen. Five Day Rentals podcast on Twitter sent us uh, Mr. Majestic as their number one and also mentioned Death Wish 2 at number five, which we, um, which we brought up but did not have on our list. Charles Bronson tweets. I don't think that's the real Charles Bronson tweeting for one reason or another, but they gave us a top five at number five, Death Wish 3, at number four, Death Wish 3, at number three, Death Wish 3, at number two, Death Wish 3, and at number one, Death Wish 3. And then listener Logan chimed in and said The Great Escape would be his favorite Charles Bronson film. Since the last show, I have seen a few things. I'm going to give you some real short ones here. Lightyear was pretty good, but uh, not something I'll be watching again anytime soon. Stranger Things Season 4 was a little bland outside of some great moments with Lucas and the new character Eddie. I just found it kind of a chore to get through. All the stuff in Russia made no sense to me, and anytime it went to that storyline, it was like all the momentum was just screeched out of the show. The kids all got great acting moments to shine in, aside from uh, Mike. He just kind of felt like an inferior actor when compared to the rest of the kids there. And the stakes just never seemed high enough uh, with this show. So, yeah, uh, a tough one. I also watched a couple of Bollywood films this past week, Saho and Beast, both of which had insane action scenes. And if you want to see some of those scenes, they're on my Twitter feed at Force5Pod. So be sure to follow and uh, add your input on those. And I also watched the pilot episode of Nathan Fielder's new show, The Rehearsal, which is brilliant. And if you've seen Nathan for you, uh, this is like Nathan for you, but the next iteration with HBO money. And uh, it's wonderful. Now, back in top five heist films, Devon Taylor recommended, and this was on his list, The Collector from 2009. A safe cracking thief breaks into his employer's home while they're supposed to be away on vacation. Once inside, he realizes someone beat him to the punch and has turned the home into a labyrinth of deadly traps. And when he said it on the show, the premise, super intriguing. A cat and mouse game set amongst a house fitted with insane traps. What's not to like? And my answer to that oft-rhetorical question, what's not to like? The main character, the ugly color scheme, the erratic editing, the direction, the story, and the ending. Right from the get-go, I knew this was going to be a rough watch for me. 
and, and thank God I did not see this in a theater because the opening title sequence, which appears to be a nod to Seven, is so unpleasant and the new metal techno music so grating that I felt compelled to fast forward through it, which is not normal for me. Shortly after we're introduced to the color scheme, it's the drab green filter that I remember saw kind of popularizing, which feels appropriate since I remember Devon telling me that this was intended to be a prequel to Saw, titled The Midnight Man. It's here we're introduced to Arkin, a guy who appears to be a general contractor working on a big house in the country. The home is owned by the Chase family. Michael the Patriarch is a diamond store owner or something like that. He's got a business card that says that. And he has a giant diamond inside of a hidden safe on the wall. At one point, Michael's daughter Hannah tugs on Arkin's sleeve. She's like uh, a young kid, maybe five or six, tugs on Arkin's sleeve and asks him to have a tea party with her. Now, any normal contractor is going to say no, you know, politely say no, but not Arkin. See, we need to have a human side to Arkin. So he sits down, he has a tea party with her because he's got a daughter about her age. And that's where the first real failing of this film happens, in my opinion. There's this goofy subplot about Arkin's ex-wife who's in debt to some real bad guys and they're going to do some real bad things if she doesn't come up with the money by midnight. So he accelerates this job. See, it turns out that Arkin's been casing this house the whole time and he's got a diamond fence just waiting for the big fat stone. He's doing it all, of course, to save his kid, giving Arkin a human quality that the filmmakers want us to connect with and root for right from the beginning. And this is a stupid move. I think the film would have been much better off if he was uh, single, blew off the kid's tea party invite, and then redeemed himself by trying to save her from the house anyway. Arkin shows up once it's dark out, just a few hours after he'd originally left there to break into the house, and it, of course he finds it chock full of traps. And I'm not talking about a few bear traps on the floor, although it does have those. I'm talking about elaborate traps that without a full DIY TV show Nathan Fielder type of crew and HBO money, you'd never be able to assemble by the time Arkin broke in. Then again, as we get to the ending, you'll realize that the screenwriters did not care about that stuff anyway. The rest of the film is an extremely unpleasant, sharp things going through skin torture flick that just never feels as impressive as it thinks it is. The thing about extreme gore for an entire movie is that by the time something is supposed to feel big or important or like really painful, it doesn't because you're so desensitized to it. It's designed to be an hour straight roller coaster of intense dread, but I actually felt bored during the second half. And some of that is due to the incredibly quick editing, which does the picture no favors and doesn't allow us to get a view of the space. And some of it is due to the main character having the personality of a dried out starfish. Now I'm sure Josh Stewart is a fine actor, but he looked more bored than I was during this movie. Needless to say, I did not like The Collector from 2009 and probably won't be seeking out the sequel, The Collection, anytime soon. For such a cracking logline, this film is missing the one thing that a premise like this really needs, fun. But I did see something that was fun, Vinegar Syndrome's new 4K release of 1984's Cloak and Dagger. His game is make-believe. Their game is murder. Spying and sabotage. This is starting to get good. What? Just like Cloak and Dagger. Now any move could be his last. Trying to kill us. Come on, this is Cloak and Dagger. For real, it's what you always wanted. Cloak and Dagger. Now playing at a theater near you. Consult your local listing. 
When I was a kid, Cloak & Dagger was one of the video store holy grails when we'd go to like a blockbuster. The cover looked awesome, featured the kid from E.T., and I knew from the playground that it had to do with video games. If I had to guess, I finally got a chance to see it when I was like eight or nine years old and I was infatuated with Nintendo, and I loved it as a kid, but I hadn't seen it since the salad days, and I couldn't remember a thing about it. Recently, Vinegar Syndrome put out a fantastic package in 4K, which you can see pictures of on my Twitter and Instagram feeds, so be sure to check that out. Henry Thomas plays Davy, a kid with three friends. One is imaginary, a fictional spy named Jack Flack, yes, Jack Flack, who he's obsessed with, played by Dabney Coleman. And two are real, Kim, a girl his age who lives in his condo complex, and Morris, a nerd who runs the video game store at the mall. One day, Morris gets tired of the kids hanging around and sends them on an errand, and while there, Davy witnesses two hitmen kill a scientist in a scene obviously inspired by Hitchcock. The scientist stumbles out, hands Davy a video game cartridge titled Cloak and Dagger, and tells him to run, before hitmen finish him off by tossing him down a stairwell. This kicks off a cat and mouse game in which our hero continuously outsmarts the three most inept criminals on planet Earth. The first stop is to Davy's home in a scene that's got a sense of legitimate danger. But before the bad guys show up, we get evidence of a real emotional core to the film as Davy's dad opens the door. It's Dabney Coleman. Seems that Davy's representation of the fictional character Jack Flack is his dad, his hero. This little wrinkle pays off big time at the end of the film as well when Flack factors into the final showdown between Davy and one of these dumbass criminals. We also find out in this moment that Davy's mom recently passed away a perennial prerequisite in Reagan-era kids' films, giving us a crushingly sad moment that definitely made me wonder if all this bizarre stuff that was happening was all in the kid's mind, conjured by irreparable psychological damage considering how stupid everybody was that was chasing him. Now, when I say these criminals are stupid, it's got to be record-breaking amounts of stupidity. There are several times when the bad guys find themselves within arm's length of Davy and unload seven or eight bullets at him, missing every shot. This is especially weird later in the film when one of the criminals kills a rat with a precise shot as it runs out of the shadows. Shadows, by the way, that Davy is lying in and the bad guy doesn't see him despite the kid wearing a bright red jacket. Another one tries to stab him from just a foot away and misses, and they even have the kid chloroformed and he ends up getting away. They are literally the worst criminals money could buy, only able to kill adults, and even then it's when the victim does not see them coming. Speaking of that rat getting blasted, there is a lot of crazy stuff going on here, par for the course in 80s kids' films. It's obvious why I liked it when I was little. This film has a ton of silenced weapons, and they are not just for show. Several people get shot or killed, including a character taking a bullet straight through the eye. There's also a climax featuring a bomb on a hijacked plane, back in the days when you could just walk through airport security with one and nobody cared. The ending is particularly explosive, and I never knew how dark things would actually get, leading to some genuine suspense during the final showdown. Despite being filmed from a script sporting plot holes like a slice of Swiss cheese, I liked Cloak and Dagger quite a bit. It's complete nonsense, and it's definitely a film that, if made today, would be completely neutered, and with good reason. It's dark as fuck. Children are not only put in danger, at one point the main bad guy tells Davy he's gonna blow out his kneecaps, which will hurt worse than any death, and then shoot him in the stomach so he'll bleed out slowly, but the children are also dangerous, at one point killing someone with an actual gun. There are also some pretty scary scenes, including one twist featuring a person missing two fingers on their right hand. It definitely took me back to those days where you'd watch this at a sleepover and imagine yourself in the same situation. 
The vinegar syndrome presentation is fantastic. Like I said, if you want to look at the packaging, take a look at my Instagram or Twitter feeds. It's got a beautiful magnetic clasp box and a slipcover made to look like an old unofficial Atari video game, complete with intentional spelling mistakes and all. The picture looked beautiful. The extras are plentiful. If you're into those wacky, utterly irresponsible 80s kids flicks, this one should bounce right to the top of your list. Speaking of the top of our list, it's almost time to get to Tarek Davis and 90s future films where they have a lot of really great things. Robotics, VRs, flying cars, great outfits, but the food in these movies almost always looks terrible. Where did the writers and directors of these films think that great pizza went? I'll tell you where it went, in my mouth. Get that audio drop. I'm a big fan of pizza, but one of the best is today's sponsor, Surfer Boy Pizza out in Lenora Hills, California. If you're hungry, these pies fly and are guaranteed hot when they hit your table or your order is free. Since 1986, all ingredients used in Surfer Boy pizzas are fresh, aside from the pineapple, which comes from a can. And I know what you're thinking, pineapple on pizza? This must be the future, and the future is gnarly. But let me tell you, you should try before you deny. As part of our partnership right now, Surfer Boy Pizza has the Force 5 Top 5 Pizza, which consists of super yellow crust, five ounces of red sauce up to the edge, four chunks of white mozzarella, three habaneros that are bright orange, two slices of green pepper, and a single piece of blue cheese. Call 805-457-4992 and order today. That's 805-457-4992. And I'm serious, you should call this number, it's kind of awesome. 805-457-4992. All right, enough about me, enough about pizza. Let's get to Tark Davis and some 90s future films. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Today, my guest is Tarek Davis. He's an actor and a writer. You've seen him before on shows like Late Night with Seth Meyers and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. You can currently see him on the Amber Ruffin Show on Peacock. Tarek Davis, how are you? I'm great, buddy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm super excited to have you. Obviously, I've, I've seen you on a lot of TV, but yeah. you've also got a Broadway show going on right now at Pasadena Playhouse. Tell us a little bit about that before we get into movies. Yeah, uh, so I'll be doing some shows um, with Freestyle of Supreme at the end of July and early August, a handful of shows. Um, for those who don't know, Freestyle of Supreme, it is a all-improvised, all-freestyle hip-hop show. Uh, it was founded by Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tommy Kale, and Anthony Vinciali. We uh, opened on Broadway in 2019, and we had our long Broadway run this past year, um, and now they've been on tour, and the tour closes out in Pasadena at the Pasadena Playhouse, where I'll be playing. So I hope to see you there, if you can make it out. That's awesome. I, um, <laughs> I'm i going to detour a little bit, because I'm a huge hip-hop head. Who are some of your favorite hip-hop artists of all time? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, I think my top MC is Black Thought. Oh, yeah. Just from, like, I, I've, met, I've met the gentleman. I've been on stage with him. But beforehand, uh, he was definitely one of my just like biggest influences. Sure. Um, when I heard the roots, I still remember hearing the roots like late in high school and early in college. And I was just like, yeah, this is the crew for me. Just cause I was also a big jazz fan. So it was like a perfect meld of like these two loves that I, uh, that I had at the time of hip hop and jazz. Uh, I would, I would give a big shout out. I mean, Rakim. Uh, you know, I, I spent time, I lived overseas for a little while and there was a, 
a rapper in Amsterdam. I lived uh, I lived in Amsterdam. It was a rapper named Pete Philly. Who? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's dope. And yeah, Perkinson uh, uh, is his producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pete Philly and Perkinson. Yeah, like they like I heard that album, and it it instantly became one of my favorite albums. Um, Mind State. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got to know Pete Philly when I was out there, and a, another fine swell gentleman uh really funny guy and yeah he became like one of my i was a grown man i was like yo i'm a fan of yours man you're like one of my favorite rappers um yeah it's like it's hip-hop for me is like film it's like um my top 10 is is they're like a top three that are consistent like black thought and so on but like in rakim and um i'm a big fan of you know uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking right now because oh, I, I know like, I put you on the spot with this. <laughs> you put me on the spot, but it's—I mean, I'm supposed to be a freestyler, so I'm supposed to be good at this. <laughs> but um, like my my love of hip hop, my love of film, like they they kind of are fluid. Um, yeah, yeah. Not in the sense that like I'm flaky and like I change who I love, but like you know, I feel like there's so there's a myriad of states of hip hop, like. I was going to say Heavy D. Uh, that was the name I was forgetting. I was going to say Heavy D out of Brooklyn. I'm here in Brooklyn. But there was like a period in like the early 90s where I was listening to nothing but Tribe with Q-Tip. And um, and then I would be listening to Heavy D. And it was like this really intellectual deep hip hop with this like mix. And then like this party hip hop. Like everything was happy and fine and like that was my groove and i think heavy d is a underrated severely underrated um artist in the hip-hop genre so i wanted to give him a shout out no arguments there you uh, you sound like me when it comes to hip-hop influences uh one of my Mm. favorite albums of all time is the jay-z uh mtv unplugged which the roots played backing band for which is like just amazing it's a great album. That's a great album. And I love Jay-Z as well. Like, Jay-Z is a... I just... I, like... I fell in love with Jay-Z... I would say, like, my sophomore year in college. And, like, I knew who he was beforehand. But, you know, it, I think it was a roommate at the time who was a big fan of Jay-Z. And, like, I sat down and I was just like, oh, no, he's got something to say. And his yeah. flow is insane. Yeah, he's my favorite of all time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's like, uh, I feel like if you ask most people, there's a consistent, like, they're consistent names that pop up. Um, mm-hmm. And Jay-Z is one of them. And it's like, you know, of course, you you know, um, I didn't want to say Biggie. I love Biggie. I don't want to say Tupac. I love Tupac. Um, I don't want to say Eminem. I love Eminem. Like, I, I'm... For me, I'm a crate digger. I like going in and trying to figure out, like, well, who's this, who's this gent or, or, or woman, um, lady who has an, you know, who also has incredible flow. Um, I like, I like to, you know, I like to fight for the underdog. So it's like, even though I wouldn't, heavy, heavy D shouldn't be in the crates. Like, for old heads, I think he's, uh, I think he's pretty well known, but for younger cats, yeah, they should definitely give him a listen. Yeah. Yeah. They should. 
Well, shit, I could sit here and talk hip hop all day, and I'm definitely going to have to send you some recommendations after the show. But uh, let's talk about Please. some movies here, Tark. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about some movies. Um, you picked a really, really interesting subgenre here, the, <laughs> the, the 90s future film. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like really up for interpretation. How did you approach the, the topic here? Uh, so for me... A lot of these films that are on my list are basically the same film. And <laughs> yeah. um, so we'll get into that. So, like, the way I approached it is, you know, uh, being a child of the 80s and 90s and, um, and a lover of film, I, I just rem- I remember the feeling of seeing so many of these films and being like, all right, some executive out there is coked out. And taking a big <laughs> swing, and I appreciate every second of it. Like these were some wacky films, and you know, for I don't know how many of your listeners are of the same. I think we're in the same age group. I'm assuming. Yeah, I are. think so. Yeah. Um, I you know, I don't know how many of your listeners are millennials or Gen Z. But you have to understand, like, the time we're living in now, we have, like, all these Marvel movies, and, you know, I think Marvel movies are fun. I like some of them. Um, you know, it's not for everybody. But right. these movies that I have chosen, I feel like, are weird. Like, you don't get the Marvel kind of thing without these movies taking these huge, ridiculous swings and spending you know, these, um, uh, and spending huge budgets trying to figure out like, yeah, what's the, what's the next step post Rambo? What's the next step post, you know, um, your typical Arnold Schwarzenegger film. And I feel like they, they were trying these films and eventually landed in the, you know, then I think the, you know, they eventually landed in the, the, the space that we're in now where, Everything is, you know, a superhero, science fiction, strange, you know, multiverse, world-breaking kind of film. And um, part of me, you know, this is the old man on the lawn chair shaking my fist in the sky. I kind of want to go back to these kind of films that were just so weird and unpredictable. Yeah, they were. Anyway, I don't know if that answered your question. That was a long rambling answer, but that was my approach of just like pre-Marvel films. Yeah, it definitely does. I The way I went about this list was really, I wanted to go back to the 90s and think about, like you said, those big swings that took really interesting approaches to what the future was going to look like. And I think a lot of the, the, the thing about these 90s sci-fi movies is that the internet was just starting to become a thing. Yeah. And uh, everybody knew that the internet was going to change the world, but we didn't know in what ways it was going to change the world. And we knew that technology was going to change, but we didn't know how that was going to change. And so a lot of these movies are like positing these really interesting futures in that they have the internet and they have virtual reality and they have these like crazy, wacky guns and stuff that are out there. And, uh, I think that kind of stopped once the internet came out and, and we kind of understand now where technology's headed and it's not great. <laughs> I mean, you know, for the, for the most part, there are some, there are some great things about technology, but there's also like some parts about technology that are ruining <laughs> things. Yeah. And uh, this is a time before that. So 
Although some of it may seem dystopian, yes. it's always like really, really interesting to see what people thought the future might hold. And that's kind of like how I built my list is thinking about these really interesting worlds. So that's that's kind of how I went about the topic. I think that's a great way to to put that. Like, just like it's always interesting to think like, what did people think would happen? <laughs> you know, I remember. Do you remember there was a show called like in in the year two thousand or something like that? Uh, where they would try to predict, like, these are all the cool things that are going to be happening in the future, like flying cars and firemen with jetpacks and stuff like that. And it's really, and, like, the ideas of, like, you know, you know, who's the, the, what the wardrobe departments were coming up with and what, what the concept artists said, like, thought cars were going to look like. And it's like, you know, the movie only takes five years, like in the future, in the future, and like we're, we're driving completely different vehicles, and it's you know as goofy as it is, it's also kind of weirdly aspirational. I appreciate that. Oh yeah, you know I'm looking at my list right now, and only one of my movies hasn't taken place yet. Like it, the year mm. that it was supposed to be in the future, only one hasn't taken place. Everything else is like ten years old, and and. uh yeah, nothing really turned out the way aside aside from one. Nothing really yeah. turned out the way that they thought it would. That's that's for sure. Yeah, my movies are so. I, and let me preface. <laughs> I want to give a want to get a preface up there. Let me preface that these movies that I've chosen are like the you know uh, I had already talked about how I like to dig in the crates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's what these movies are. These aren't like. You won't hear me talk about, you know, some of these critically acclaimed science fiction movies, which I really do love and enjoy as well. But these are more like niche. Um, this is a film that, you know, I would, if I were working at the video store, you know, I would really have to curate this for some, for a particular person. This isn't, these aren't the, the big splashy films. Um, I love it. That won the awards and everyone talks about. Well, that's uh, that's why we I kind of changed the name of the episode to five awesome 90s future films instead of like top five. Because, yeah, yeah, mine's the same way. I've got a lot of deep cuts and I'm wondering, like, if we're going to match up on any. We'll see. I wonder. I, I wonder. I I think your deep cuts are going to be more impressive. Because uh, <laughs> I have <laughs> well, one. We'll see. I, yeah, I have one deep cut here that I'm like, I'm pretty proud of. but. I, the rest are films that people will definitely know or they will have heard of, but I don't know if they have fully watched and appreciated. Yeah, I, I feel like mine's kind of the same way. I have two real deeper cuts on my on my honorable Ooh. mentions, but um, yeah, I'm we'll so see. excited to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Tarek, you ready to get into this thing? Yeah, let's do it. You know what's gonna happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's gonna happen. All right, I'm going to kick us off here. I'll kick us off. Uh, cool. And I'm going to start with one that, in terms of the world that it builds, is probably the least futuristic looking on the outside. And okay. it's from 1994. It's a movie called No Escape. From the producer of Aliens and the Terminator. <laughs> Welcome to a prison with just one rule. Survival of the fittest. Ah! 
guards. No walls. No escape. You want it? Come and get it. No! Rated R starts Friday, April 29th at theaters everywhere. Oh, are you familiar with No Escape? Yes. Yeah, I love this movie. Love this movie. This is one that I've talked about on the show before, but I don't think it's ever made a list. That's a I was that's a good one. Yeah, this is a real fun movie. This is the, one the that, missile gun. The gun yes, with one yes. missile. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, and it makes this really great like wind up sound. Oh, it's so yes. good. Um, so the story for those who aren't uh, aren't hip that's to no one. escape. Yeah, this one actually this one takes place in 2022, right here, mm. right now, and uh, it stars the amazing uh, Ray Liotta. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Jersey Zone. Yeah, he plays this Marine captain. He's sent to a remote prison island. And on this remote prison island, you have two factions of prisoners. You have one that's trying to build a, a great society. And then you have these others. They're like the looters. They're like the kind of the Mad Max style gang. Yeah. And they're at war. And he kind of finds himself in the middle of this war. And so he's, he's trying to figure out how to navigate these two sides that both want him to join their gang. And at the same time, he's trying to escape out of the Supermax prison. It's um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Ray Liotta at his finest uh, as this guy Robbins. He's he's um trying to find himself a ticket off this island, but he's got a great supporting cast too. Kevin Dillon's in there. Michael Lerner, Ernie Hudson, Ernie Hudson, awesome. another sweet gentleman who have yeah uh, uh who I've had the privilege to meet and just a a wonderful guy. Ernie Hudson's one of my favorite. Yeah, I, any movie he's in, I'm like sitting down. Same with like yeah, like you. Uh, it's such a great cast, and like you said, you yeah. brought up Lance Henderson, another actor who I'll watch, Kevin Dillon. The villain is, is from it's uh, British actor Stuart Wilson. It is, yeah, and God, he stands out. So uh, you know, as good as this whole crowd is, he stands out as Merrick. This just like chewing the screen in every scene that he's in. He's so good. I feel like Stuart. I I. I'd be interested to hear where you first saw him. I first took note of Stuart Wilson and I think Lethal Weapon 3, where he was the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I have a, it's kind of a pet peeve where I'll hear a British actor doing an American accent and everyone's like, oh, it's such a, he's so good. And I'm like, no, I hear a British person doing an American <laughs> accent. But Stuart Wilson was, was truly like a chameleon. and. Um, and then I found out he was British and I was like, this guy is an incredible actor. And I want I just, he's like heavy D, like <laughs> complete, it's seriously underrated. And I always thought should have been in more films. Um, yeah, he was so good in this as the villain. Um, I yeah. mean, he's, he just looks like he's having the best time being as bad as he can be. To answer your question, I, I probably said the first time I saw him was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, which came out like oh the year before God, this. Oh my God, that's right. He's a villain in that. Yeah, right after Lethal Weapon 3. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I remember being like, that's a weird career choice, my guy. <laughs> uh, he did a lot of weird stuff, though. He was like all over the place. He was just kind of doing whatever he wanted. Yeah, which I respect, you know, hats off. Like, it, whether it's either like, yo, this I want to do this. Or I got to pay the bills. Either way, I respect it. Like, this is a hard business. But yeah, and his shout out to Walter Merrick's wardrobe. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah, his um, 
his freaking no he has like these nose piercings that go up his nose he's got these wild dreadlocks and then everybody looks like they're straight out of mad max like out of the yeah. road warrior with their wardrobe on that side it's really fun yeah um gonna be the old man on the chair lawn chair again that's something i really miss from films of just like wild costumes mm-hmm. um yeah. and like the wild imagination and i feel like Things are pretty, they all kind of look the same right now. They have the similar aesthetic and pretty homogeneous. And I'm like, no, like, go out there. Uh, this dude made armor out of what he could find on, on yep. this island. And like, it's, it, and it's an incredible look that you just don't forget. And I love it. No Escape is a great film, dude. No Escape, which is finally getting a Blu-ray release. It's never been released on Blu-ray. Finally announced, I think later this year, it'll be out on Blu-ray. So I cannot wait to put that in the collection because I watched it so many times off of like, I, I think I taped it off of HBO when we had a free weekend and I watched yeah. the shit out of that tape when I was little. I'll finally have it on disc. Oh, that's uh, that's a great one. Uh, and I'm glad it's finally on Blu-ray. Uh, I, may have to, I may have to check that out. All right, Tarek, what do you got at number five, my friend? All right, so uh, my number five, this is my uh, Deep Crate pick. This is a 1992 film starring Dutch actor Rutger Hauer called Split Second. A cop is out of control, and the killer's on the loose, terrified, devastated. Split Second. Sweet dreams. Rated R begins Friday at a theater near you. Dude, this is on my list too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. All right, yeah, you talk uh, about it. I'll fill in the blanks. Yeah, split second. It takes place in the year 2008. So we have passed that. Uh, global warming. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's like the whole, like, everything sucks. There's global warming and uh, pollution everywhere and everything is black and rainy and gray. Yep. And Rucker Hauer, um, he is a hardened homicide detective. Uh, he's really cynical. He wears a black leather coat, duster, black leather pants. And like, you know, I think it takes place in London, even though he has an American accent. <laughs> yeah, um, it does take place in London. Do, yep. They don't explain that. He's just like, <laughs> you know, it's a Dutch guy doing an American accent in London, but whatever. Um, and there are a bunch of these horrible murders. Um, and like people hanging in like impossible places and it's a little predator-esque and it's just like what's killing these people and it's a predator basically and the and um whatever the creature whoever made the design for the creature uh i don't know who uh i should probably do my research i don't know who did um the design for the film but the creature had a great unique look and i think it belongs up there um kind of with the iconic monsters of of cinema of the like uh 80s and 90s and 70s like the alien creature and predator this thing had you know they were probably definitely got notes to try to make it look like the a cross between alien and predator and i think they landed in a their own unique space where it had like a visor and these sharp teeth and it was tall and lanky and all dark and um 
it looked really cool and it was really scary. And so basically Rutger Hauer and his nerdy Oxford educated partner, um, <laughs> they have to, they have to hunt this thing down and kill it. And it just becomes like a really fun, you know, all of a sudden, uh, it goes from like seven to predator and 0.60 seconds. And I love every second of it. So that's split second. Yeah. And it takes place in 2008, I think. I don't know if I said that. This is a great pick. Yep, 2008 flooded London. Uh, this is a this is a weird one because I think this would be higher on my list if they showed more of the creature. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you don't see the creature until the very end. And if you were a, a video store browser like me, you would have seen this cover all the time. And as a kid, you would have wanted to take this home because it has like Rooker Hauer on the cover with the monster behind him. Like, you know what the monster is supposed to look like, but they don't show you until very, very late in the movie. But yeah, yeah, when it shows up, like you said, it looks great. See, this was a weird, so I was a video store browser and I didn't catch this one in the video store. Mm. Me and my dad, I still remember it. It was um, like, we would, <laughs> we would stay up late because we had HBO. And like, if it was a weekend and, you know, um, my mom was out of working. Like it was kind of just the guys at home and we would stay up late watching movies. And I remember this came on HBO and we were like, Rucker Hour. All right. We're going to sit down and stay on this channel. But we had no idea what the film was. And so when it, as it unfolded, we were both just like, what? Like, oh yeah, that's a great surprise then. Yeah. It, so it, it was a huge surprise that it turned out to be a creature feature. And um, so this place, this film always has a special place in my heart. Yeah. And if you're going in blind, you don't really know what, because like you you said, there are really crazy murders happening. I mean, something's pulling people's hearts out and eating them. And then the cops think it might be the devil, but then it's leaving like these celestial signs at the scene of the crime. Yeah, so they don't right. really know what it is, all kinds of weird stuff. And so as the viewer, yeah, I could see how you would be surprised to learn that it was an actual monster. That, yeah, that would be a great reveal. Yeah, it was. And uh, I got to watch. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time. So a lot of this was like I had to pull from memory. And then I was like, I remember this film. Yeah. And then like going on and looking online and like, oh, yeah, it existed. <laughs> I wasn't insane. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would love to see see this film again. It's been so long. Um, I think another aspect of this film that I love is, and it's something that is kind of a link between all of my films, uh, and maybe films of that era. Every main character had the coolest name. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, Rutger Hauer's uh, character in Split Second is no exception. Uh, his character's name was Harley Stone. Harley Stone. Doesn't get much better than that until you learn the name of his partner. Remember the name of his straight lace partner, Dick Durkin. Dick Durkin. <laughs> yeah, it's like the the porn star name of the century, right there. Who I mean, whoever was writing this script, uh, I think the writer was written by Gary Scott Thompson. Gary Scott Thompson was just having a ball, I imagine. Because <laughs> um, if you name your character Harley Stone, and what's his partner's name? Well, he's uh, the Oxford educated. Dick Durkin, like you're just having a good time. Yeah, yeah, this one's a blast, and they do have a they do have a lot of good back and forth there. It almost feels like Lethal Weapon style chemistry, although they never 
lean into it with the comedy as much as they could because Rucker Hauer is doing some real like over the top kind of like psychotic stuff as this uh he's he's the Riggs and the other dude's the Murtaugh so you kind of get a little bit of both of that absolutely I I like to think of this film as um I think he's playing batty basically like it's it's a weird yeah it's a weird uh Blade Runner kind of multiverse film with like what if batty became a cop and had yeah. like a pen like a, a sweet tooth and was always eating little chocolates like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right and coffee and coffee yeah um he would be he would be harley stone i i wish we were still in a um lived in a world where we were kind of making films like this um you know um but yeah uh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you dug this. Dug this pick. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'll say about it. I also had it in my notes. I said um, it was a cross between Blade Runner, Predator, Terminator, and Waterworld because he really does kind of look like Terminator, and then the whole place is flooded. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a great. That's a great comparison. And if you're interested in seeing this, um, MVD Rewind just put this out last year in a really great disc. It has a ton of like interviews that are brand new with the cast and crew that worked on it. And there's a uh, full length audio commentary, too. So it is out there and it looks great. Okay, I'm going to check that out. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yes, sir. So that was uh, your number five. And then it was also my number four. So we're going to roll into your number four. All right. Uh, so my number four is probably my last deep, deep cut. And maybe it's not a deep cut considering who stars in it. But my last film is Free Jack. Alex Furlong is about to die and enter the year 2009 where money can buy anything. Someone paid to bring him back. Including life itself. Why me? Why don't they just grab somebody who's alive now? I can't tell you that. Emilio Estevez, Mick Jagger, Rene Russo, and Anthony Hopkins. Welcome to my mind. Free Jack, rated R. Starts Friday, January 17th at a theater near you. (laughs) This is on my list too. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Okay. Um, yeah, Free Jack Starling, Emilio Estevez. Uh, I saw this in the movie theaters. And that's how, uh, this is how much big I was into, um, science fiction films at the time. Came out in 1992. Uh, so I saw this at the Blue Star Cinemas in New Jersey. And, um, yeah, it stars Emilio Estevez, Anthony Hopkins, and Mick Jagger. And Mick Jagger is, it's not like a, he's like, so it's a, this is a hard plot to explain. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't, we don't have three hours to explain this plot that they tried to slam into an hour and a half movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Emilio Estevez is a stunt. He's a race car driver and he's in like a race of his lifetime. And then he is snatched from his timeline into the future where people are using the bodies of people from the past, like right before they die, and then they're inhabiting those bodies to continue living. Yeah, and if they escape, they are called freejacks. And then like bounty hunters chase them to bring them back to the rich people. And the bounty hunter in this film is another leather duster wearing uh badass played by Mick Jagger. Yeah. And they call them bone jackers. The uh, <laughs> the bounty bone hunters jackers. are called bone jackers. Yeah, 
Yes. The premise is great. Like coming back from the past, because you have Emilio Estevez in this Indy 500 style race and the, his car, like it's not like a normal, uh, normal crash that you would see in an F1 race. His car launches into yes. the yes. like yes, over, like, overhead walkway. <laughs> like, so these guys basically steal him a split second before he dies. So nobody will, nobody will care because they already just figure, well, he's dead in the yeah, past. He's dead, and and so yeah. are we because he flew into <laughs> all of us. No kidding. So they had so many options of dead bodies to choose, but yeah, know. I mean, hey, if if I was in 1992, if I was going to choose a body, it might have been Emilio Estevez's too. This is saying. true. This is true. He was living. He was living that high life at that point. Yeah, this is uh, this is a real dystopian view of the future. I mean, it's like empty uh, oil barrels with fires burning in them and cars that look like they're straight out of Death Race 2000. Yep. Anthony Hopkins is great as this billionaire. He's, he's a terminal billionaire, so he's about to die and he's just trying to put his conscience into this this new person. And they have him on the operating table, like ready to lobotomize him when rebels break in. And that gives him a chance to get off the table and get out. So that's like where the where the plot goes. But there's also a side plot with Rene Russo, who plays his uh, girlfriend right. in the past. That's and then that's right. He sees her in the future. And uh, then there's like this whole side plot of him, you know, trying to get back with her. But she's moved on and and all that stuff. Then there's. I mean, in terms of like supporting characters, there's other great ones that everybody would know now, like Frankie Faison and um, yeah. Jonathan Banks from uh, Mike from Breaking Bad is in there, too. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Banks was he's been out here. Yeah. He's one of the like, you know, uh, isn't he also the mutant in Total Recall? Oh, shit. He might be. I, I haven't seen Total Recall for a very long time. Yeah. Jonathan Banks is. In the, yeah. He's one of those actors, man. Just like. You just see They're, him pop up everywhere. Yeah, like so someone like Jonathan Banks, Ernie Hudson, those are the people I would freak out at if I see a celebrity, like, um, and that's who I want to talk to. And I'm like, you know, I asked Ernie Hudson, I was like, yo, I'm Space Hunter. You have to tell me about that film because that shit was wild. You know, like those those actors who have just been in the game for a while and have been consistent and elevate every role they play and are always in the front. Those are the people I really freak out about. And Jonathan Banks is on that list. Man, we got uh, we got a couple of crossovers here. I dig that. Um, this might be a real a real short conversation if we got some more going yeah, on here. We'll it, see. Yeah, it, we will. Um, let's see what else you got on your list. Uh, I I will say I really expect I respect your taste this far, sir. Hey, I'm, I'm digging your picks, obviously, as well. Um, so, yeah, that was your number four and my number three. So let's let's have your number three here. Let's see if we can get away from this crossover. All right. My number three, this one is getting a little bit more into uh, known territory. My number three is Virtuosity. His name is Sid 6.7, a computer composite of 183 serial killers. Somehow, Sid got himself out of the computer. Recognize him? Kill my wife and my daughter. Doesn't mean we can't be friends. Here we go. He's gonna want more victims. He's gonna want more coverage. It's not gonna be the same this time, Parker. Denzel Washington. That's right. Virtuosity. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 4th at theaters everywhere. 
<laughs> is it on your list? It is on my list too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All oh, right, man. This is great. This is great. Yeah. Um, Virtuosity, a 1990s uh, American science fiction film directed by Brett Leonard, starring Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe. Um, this Virtuosity kind of is one of those films that epitomizes my love of this particular subgenre. Uh, it's, you know, it involves, and it involves either a soldier or a cop traveling either through time, through space, or in this case, virtual reality, mm -hmm. to catch, uh, his arch nemesis. Um, and so his, uh, in this case, Parker Barnes, which is another badass name. Great name. Um, and they say it constantly throughout this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you gotta have the, the villain yell the hero's full name. Parker Barnes! Like, Parker it's Barnes. not, yeah, it's not a 90s, uh, feature film if the villain doesn't say the hero's name, um, multiple times. Um, but yeah, Parker Barnes, former cop, um, who is now in the prison system, and is being uh, used in these experiments for virtuality, virtual reality, um, to train against this AI that is a combination of all the worst uh, <laughs> sociopaths in in history, like Hitler yeah. and Ted Bundy, <laughs> and uh, they're all in the body of Russell Crowe, who is Sid six point seven, and Sid. Loves playing the, so it's basically the, uh, Denzel enters the Matrix to fight this, uh, sociopath. And so this came out like four years before the Matrix, I believe. And, um, another thing they don't talk about in this film is Denzel is a cyborg. Uh, they just <laughs> mention it in passing. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm I'm half robot. <laughs> um and yeah, he chases Sid breaks out into the real world through some convoluted plot device. Oh yeah, and it's is able to get a real it's so bizarre. And he's able to get a real body, but he retains like all of his super strength and Parker's the only one who can get bring him in. And they just use uh Los Angeles as a playground. And, um, it's, so it's like in the near future. I don't know if they ever named the date of when it's in the future. It's in the 2000s. Um, and yeah, we would, we would have full on cyborgs in like around circa 2005, which is where I think <laughs> this takes place. And I love this film. I love it. Anyway, that's my spiel. It's actually supposed to be 1997. So it's only supposed to be three oh, years after me? the script was written. Yeah. <laughs> And two years after it came out. But, like, I also feel like the movie was kind of, like, the, the set design and the future design was kind of neutered by the size of the budget. Because yep. as we watch the uh, the virtual reality program, like, you see this um, huge futuristic-looking board with a ton of buttons and switches. And then each of these uh, serial killer profiles is loaded on these big 8-track-looking cartridges. And everything yeah. looks futuristic in there. And then you walk outside and cops still have regular guns and people are driving around in their 96 Ford Escorts. It's just like kind of um, bizarre, but it, it 
felt like all the money was probably spent on the computer special effects that uh, yes. don't look awesome now. And they probably did not look awesome in 96 either, but um, still really fun to watch. It's a really fun film. It's one of those films every time I watch it, I just, I kind of wish I was in the, in the room, a producer and could have made the suggestion. I was like, Hey guys, if you place this whole movie in the virtual reality world, you're going to make a lot of money. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, once they go into the real world, it just kind of becomes a conventional action movie and it's still fun to watch. And Russell Crowe chews up so much scenery and, Oh, he's great. Uh, and it's an early turn for Denzel as an action hero. Because before he was doing a lot of, you know, serious, um, very, you know, um, intentionally paced kind of just like dramas. And and this was like his first time like seeing if he could do the action hero thing. And I think he does a great job. Um, but I'm always like, yeah, if this film was all in the virtual reality world, this would have been the film that people would still be talking about today. I always thought it was a weird choice for Denzel because he came, he was coming off like a huge run where he did Malcolm X, Philadelphia, Crimson Tide. And then he just like slides into this movie wearing dreadlocks in the beginning. You remember his look in the, in yeah. the when he's in prison, he has the dreadlocks and the beard. He looks awesome. The beard. Yeah, he looked awesome. It was, uh, it's like this film is three films in one. Yeah, it is. It could have been the dreadlocked, bearded, cyborg guy in prison fighting to survive. It could have been future cop in virtual reality world chasing the criminal, or it could have just been a action movie set in uh, 1997. But they jammed all three together, and like it's imperfect, but still a lot of fun. It it is a lot of fun, and you mentioned his performance, but Russell Crowe in this is—it feels like he's doing his best Nicolas Cage impression. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's, he's so un- unhinged as Sid, which stands for sadistic, intelligent, and dangerous. And yeah. he's just—he should have played more villains in his career because he's great in this as just this lunatic. He is, and um, shout out to. The costume department like they mm-hmm. they gave him like this bright cartoony green suit and gave him like this coiffed hair yeah he looks like brad pitt from cool world right exactly he looks like a computer program and it's um it's such a catchy iconic look um yeah. and it's so totally different you know t2 had come out not too long you know before and you know the iconic Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator 2, kind of cold robot was what mm-hmm. you would think of when you think of a killer android or a uh, robot. And yeah, I think I thought Russell Crowe kind of just tossed that out of the window and it was a breath of fresh air. I agree. There's also an, uh, a scene where he takes over a TV station. And, oh, yes. Uh, it's like the most bizarre scene I've ever seen. He executes somebody on live TV long before Joker did it. And yep. then he like all of a sudden has his own name tag that he made and he's got his own <laughs> intro to the TV program. It's just, it's, it's bizarre. And it's got the most nineties thing I can think of. Michael Buffer, Michael Buffer oh. makes an appearance in like this UFC uh, fight and Russell Crowe, like chucks some guy from the second deck to the bottom. Yeah. Let's get ready to rumble. Yeah. Michael Buffer, man, that dude. Uh, I, I wish they, I wish there was just a little bit more foresight because, 
I really feel like this could have been one of the greats. Yeah, it feels like it could be ripe for a remake now. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, um, that was your number three. That was so my number three. That was my number two. Let's uh, let's go to your number two here. So you kind of foreshadowed my number two uh, when you brought up Nicolas Cage. My number two is Face Off. You have lived and breathed Castor Troy for years. Do you think that I want to do this? When he took on the face of his son's killer. That bomb is out there. We're almost out of time. The killer took his. You get licking. Now, bad never had it so good. You're Sean Archer. I guess I'm Castor Troy. John Travolta, Nicolas Cage, Face Off. <laughs> what a predicament. Rated R. Starts Friday, June 27th everywhere. Face Off is probably the most, the least sci-fi out of all of these. But it is a sci-fi film nonetheless and and takes place in a weird, it takes place in like a weird pretend future. Um, yeah, it's very subtle. It's a very subtle future, that's for sure. Yeah, it's a very subtle future. But the reason I chose Face Off, I mean, it takes the science fiction concept of uh, these mortal enemies um, with the coolest names, <laughs> two of the coolest names ever in film history, I feel like, are Castor Troy and Sean Archer. And they are mortal enemies uh, who really want to kill each other. They just, they would be so happy if the other was dead. And after a huge, beautiful, epic fight directed by John Woo at the beginning of the film, such a good opening. It's such an amazing opening. It's such a it's a very Batman and Joker. Yeah, yeah. I always every time I watch this movie, I'm just like, this is Batman and the Joker. Uh, <laughs> it really is, yeah. Bat, yeah, Batman worked for the FBI and Joker was more of a was a less theatrical terrorist. You would get face off. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they after uh, Castor Troy is put into a coma, uh he also, you know, sets this time-locked uh, bomb in Los Angeles that's going to blow all the city up. And so John Travolta's Sean Archer has to go under the secret surgery to switch faces with Nicolas Cage and uh, to go into this, you know, super security prison to talk to Castor Troy's little brother to find out the code to defuse the bomb and then be the hero. And of course, things go awry, and Castor wakes up, and then he gets John Travolta's face, <laughs> and <laughs> that fits pretends perfectly. to be John. It fits perfectly on his on his face, um, and they pretend to be each other until they can kill each other and get the other's face back. Um, it is a true face off, and <laughs> it is one of my favorite movies ever. I absolutely love Face Off. You you mentioned John Woo. He's like one of the greatest action directors of all time. And this is probably his wildest movie and most out there movie. And it just works on all levels for me. You mentioned yeah. the amazing names of Caster Troy and Sean Archer. It also has the worst name ever with Pollux Troy, his brother. <laughs> what a terrible <laughs> name that is. But uh, Gina Gershon's in there. She's great. And uh, oh my God. Nick Cassavetes plays Dietrich, who's the guy who like runs the hideout that the Troys go to. And he would end up a couple of years later directing The Notebook. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he he the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Uh, yeah. Considering who his father was. And 
yeah, it's this is a film that uh, John Woo made a few um, uh, films here in the States. And the two that stand out to me were Face Off and Hard Target. Yeah. And I really kind of, I, I don't know what happened. I think, I think people fell out of love with the, with the action movie for a little bit. Um, and I think a casualty of that was John Woo not getting the budgets to play in a big sandbox like he was. And this movie is just one big, huge, incredible, silly action piece after the other. Like, yeah, let's have these two boats fight each other. <laughs> like, just two boats. <laughs> like, great scene. It's a great scene. Let's have this fight out in this church and put all the doves, all the doves in the church. And no one will ever just be shooting one gun. They will have two guns in each hand. And they will be diving and flipping. And it's just beautifully choreographed and so ridiculous. But uh, John Woo's a master at that kind of heightened reality and um the sci-fi just tips it over into a place of pure joy for me i agree the the sci-fi in this movie is a lot like it is in virtuosity in that you have this really cool futuristic prison where everybody has to wear these super mario magnet boots and Mm -hmm. if they want you to stop they lock the magnet boots down and you can't move anywhere and that's it was always a really cool premise to me and you know their escape from there is great But then again, when you get back to modern day L.A., everything just looks like 1997 again. Uh, This is kind of uh, maybe a limitation of the budget or maybe something they just wanted a really subtle future. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, But I love it. Great choice. Um, Wow. All right. Number one here, my grand finale. It's going to be interesting to see if we match up. I really wanted to go with uh, a vision of the future that has always interested me it's the only one on my list that has not happened yet so it could potentially end up this way it takes place in 2032 in a little place called san angeles i am of course talking about 1993's demolition demolition man Man. (laughs) yes that was my number one in the year 2032 in a peaceful world two mortal enemies from another time will be unleashed on a future that isn't big enough for the both of them. I've been dreaming about killing you for 40 years. Keep dreaming. This display of barbaric behavior was unacceptable even in your time. Yeah, but it worked. Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, Demolition Man, Rated R. Starts Friday, October 8th at a theater near you. Oh, well, yeah, we could we could talk about this together then. I think everybody's probably seen this movie by now. I just could not leave it off because the future it paints is so interesting. Yeah. Every restaurant is Taco Bell. They have swear tickets. So if you say a cuss word, you get a ticket. They have the three seashells, which I don't think anybody's figured out how to use yet. I still. Yeah. It's yeah. And I think I talked about this during on a show during the pandemic. And this paints a future where we have people comfortable with casual racism. Mm -hmm. There's no toilet paper anywhere. Nope. Video calling is everywhere. Mm -hmm. We have a police force that is embarrassingly, embarrassingly untrained. Yep. We have the government with the technology to monitor people's movements. And we have people that are afraid to touch each other for fear of transmitting disease 
this is basically COVID. Yeah. This was COVID pandemic right here. <laughs> I remember like showing this film to my girlfriend and we were, and she fell in love with it. Like we were both just like, Oh, this film is actually not what it appears to be. It's a very subversive film. Oh yeah. Uh, describe this disguise as this scientific futuristic action movie. Mm-hmm. But can like the um the whole Dennis Leary as Edgar Friendly and like the people <laughs> living in the sores and the points he makes and who the bad guy really is and all of that dances around like the that's like spinning around the 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 heavy gravitational orbit of Sylvester Stallone as John Spartan and Wesley Snipes as Simon Phoenix. Only the two of the only names that top for me, Caster Troy um, and Sean Archer are John Spartan and Simon Phoenix. Like, yeah. Uh, again, this is Batman versus the Joker. Yeah. Yep. I had always been a fan of Wesley Snipes. Um, I had seen Wesley Snipes in a bunch of films, Kingdom of New York, and he was in the bad video and yeah, directed by Scorsese. Scorsese, yeah. And so around this, like, people had known, like, he was known, but he wasn't Wesley Snipes yet. And then when this came out, it was like, yo, who's this dude going toe to toe with Sylvester Stallone? Mm-hmm. And this is Stallone at like I feel like this is peak Stallone, sure. Uh, where he's funny, he's charismatic, he's like everything. Like he's at the top of his game, and he is perfectly matched with Snipes, and they just have this beautiful sandbox to play in. Uh, in both time periods, like John Spartan bungee jumping off the helicopter <laughs> with one gun into like this burning building to it's just this is a comic book film as far as i'm concerned this is very this is very pre-marvel movie yeah at this time so snipes had done like white men can't jump and i think he had just started like passenger 57 yes but but this showed how over the top he could be and what kind of a wild personality he could be, I think, in, in his own villain role. And mixed with his look, like you said, in, in for some of those other films, like the costume design, his outfit in this is amazing with this like bright yellow hair, just yes. tearing shit up in this uh, futuristic San Angeles, which is like, I think it was Los Angeles, San Diego and Santa Barbara all combined into one. And yeah. He's just blowing stuff up. He's got great one-liners. He just looks like he's having so much fun with people that just don't know how to contain somebody like him. Yeah. Um, I love, yeah, he wears, like, tire armor. Yeah, yeah. And the uniforms, the the San Angeles uni- police uniforms are like these <laughs> uh, throwback to... Like they're wearing like they almost look like you know stormtroopers. Like they they have like these these dark boots and like uh, these very neat uniforms. And so it's a very the aesthetic of that film is so beautiful and iconic, um, and interesting and subversive. Like what they're saying about 
why the police are dressed like a little like Nazis. Like, um, it's it's a wild film, and Sandra Bullock is great in this film. Yeah, we haven't even talked about her yet. Yeah, she plays a police officer, and like you know, the police are nonviolent. Everyone is nonviolent. They have these batons that. If they tap you with the baton, you kind of just fall asleep peacefully. Mm-hmm. And Simon Phoenix is the first person who they just can't deal with. And uh, it's also, this was, you know, I remember Passenger 57 was like, oh, Wesley Snipes is a martial artist. And, and so then when I saw this, and it was just like, he's taking cops out and throwing them through cars. It's like, yo, this dude, this is before Blade. This is like, this is where he exploded. Um, and I think Jesse the Body Ventura makes a small cameo appearance. And there are all these like little Easter eggs if you like keep your eyes open. It's such a, it's a beautiful film of, of carnage. And, <laughs> and for, and for, forewarning like where we might be headed it's i think it also does a great job of like the future at first doesn't look that bad until you pay attention and you find out where we've been like what we had to go through and it's it's quite potent i agree i agree the um one of those easter eggs is the schwarzenegger presidential library (laughs) where arnold schwarzenegger became president yeah I love that they would have, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and twins seeing the Rambo poster and mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger seeing this poster and like these digs that they had in each other. And I wish that could, someone could have just told them like, guys, if you make a movie together in the 90s, no one's stopping. Yeah, you mentioned the Jesse Venturi cameo. There's also a cameo by Jack Black in like a very blink and you'll miss it. Uh, underneath the oh in, yeah underneath the sewer area yeah that's right um the only thing i have left to say about demolition man is that it is one of the most quotable movies ever made there are just yes, like so many quotes that i've drawn from here this is um yeah it's a quotable film it's just if you haven't seen it do yourself a favor and don't watch it by yourself throw get your good friends together and watch this film you will thank us you will thank us Tarek, we um we matched up on three of our picks. I think yeah, three we did or four. No, we, we matched up on four of them: Virtuosity, yeah. Free Jack, Demolition Man, and Split Second. Man, we have very similar movie tastes, which I am excited about. So am I. This was so much fun. This, this was, was so fun. Much fun. Did you have any honorable mentions that you wanted to bring up that just didn't have room on your top five? I did. Uh, my two were both Van Damme movies, uh, Time Cop and Universal Soldier. Oh, shit. I forgot about Time Cop. That might have made my list if I had thought of that. Yeah. Those were, those were the two that I wanted to bring in because um, they're, they're very similar. Yeah, those are good picks. Uh, I also only had, well, I had three. I didn't want to put The Matrix on here because it seemed so uh, obvious. But there was a less obvious movie Right along those same lines called Mind Warp. Have you ever heard of Mind Warp from 1992? Ooh, it sounds familiar. Is it a... It's a Bruce Campbell movie. I got it confused. I thought I was thinking of the film Brain Scan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Um, But Mind Warp, I, I wanted to bring up because a lot of people look to the Matrix and they see, like, the ghost in the shell as the, the main influence. But I think the Wachowskis also saw Mind Warp. 
because it has a real mm. similar setup to the Matrix in that people lay down in these chairs and they have this thing plug into their back of their neck and then they are teleported into this um, ignorance is bliss virtual reality world uh, where, you know, they're basically used for energy. And uh, mm. it's got a lot of similarities to The Matrix. It's a Bruce Campbell movie. Um, the Like the futuristic stuff is just it's kind of a drab movie. So I didn't want to really clue people in. But if you want to see one of those obvious Matrix influences, track down Mind Warp. And then. Oh, um, wow. The only other one I wanted to talk about was a movie called Demolitionist, which is like a female <laughs> RoboCop uh, ripoff, which is a lot of fun. Um, there were a ton of different RoboCop ripoffs, but the Demolitionist I watched recently because somebody did top five ripoffs and I saw that one. It was really fun. It just didn't have the the juice to make my top five here. Yeah. Uh, you've given me two films that I need to watch. Rich, oh, Richard Grieco. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> yep, Richard Grieco in there. Yeah. Tarek Davis. I had a lot of fun with this. Um, where can people find more of your work? Uh, you can find me on the socials. I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Tarek R. Davis. That's T-A-R-I-K-R-D-A-V-I-S. And, uh, yeah, I'll post shows that I'm doing, uh, uh, sometimes weird movie facts or art. And, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. And I'm also, uh, on the Amber Ruffin show at Peacock at nine, uh, nine o'clock on Fridays. Cool. Go watch Peacock. Go watch the Amber Ruffin show and check. Tarek out at the uh, Pasadena Playhouse. Like I said, that's never happened before. We matched up on four picks. Those shared picks were Split Second from 1992, starring Ruger Hauer, uh, Demolition Man, both of our number ones, Free Jack with uh, Emilio Estevez and Mick Jagger, and Virtuosity from 1995. The only ones we did not share, my number five, No Escape from 1994, and his number two, Face Off, from 1997. Which 90s future films are your favorite? Which ones did we miss? Let me know on Twitter at Force5Pod, on Instagram at Force5Podcast, or through email, Force5Podcast at gmail.com, and your comment might make the next show. When you get a free minute, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform, and tell your friends to become list nerds along with us. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, go watch The Amber Ruffin Show, and go watch some 90s future films because they're awesome. Hey there, classmates. Tune in to Middle Class Film Class every Monday and Wednesday for weekly movie news, streaming picks, and one deep dive review. The Batman trailer. There was a teaser. There was a trailer. Trailer one, trailer two. Final trailer? I don't know if it's the same one. How many trailers do we need exactly? Leave an email or a voicemail to join in the discussion. Bullshit artist! Uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy! All right. awesome. You're going full Danzig. Right, I am. My, my trans yeah, has no power, power over me. me. <laughs> <laughs>